For those of you maybe listening to this, you didn't hear the message last week, or you didn't watch last week. Uh, what we did, we spent some time, uh, a little bit of a uh, teaching, and then we just read the Word. And that all goes back to the way people were taught in the Old Testament and on into the New Testament, how the Jews were taught. The focus was on the Word. I shared with you how that, uh, you know, the, the, when the kids were brought up, I mean, when they were as young as three years old, they were taken to a rabbi who uh, began their instruction. Now, granted, they were three, so the approach was different uh, at that young age. But nevertheless, training began from a, a rabbi. Now, the training at home was already supposed to have been gone, had to begun. And every generation of uh, Jew was supposed to know the word. They were supposed to have massive volumes of it memorized, the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And they were supposed to be able to quote it. Well, then as time went on and you had the Psalms, you had the prophets, uh, they learned even more. This is why in the New Testament, when Jesus would say things like, you know, have you not heard or have, what does it say? Well, they knew. They knew. They'd heard it and they knew it. And when Jesus would quote from Scripture, uh, he didn't have to have a Bible in front of him. I mean, he just quoted it. And a lot of people might think that, well, you know, I mean, that was Jesus. Well, yeah, but it was everybody. Because when he would quote from Scripture, those religious leaders, for sure, they knew if he, if he said one word wrong, they knew. They understood. And so, therefore, it wasn't just because he was Jesus it was because of how he was raised and the word which just poured into him. Same thing with, uh, you get into the New Testament as far as Book of Acts and beyond. This is why the apostles, they knew the word. It was in them. They had been raised that way. And this is one of the reasons why there was such an emphasis on teaching there in the New Testament. The apostle Paul and Peter and the rest because they had a lot of Gentiles coming in who were totally clueless. They hadn't been raised in a synagogue. They didn't know the word. And so the word was uh, taught to them, but it wasn't taught in the same way as it was uh, like in the Old Testament. In other words, the, uh, the apostles, they would teach kingdom teaching, but they also would make reference to the Old Testament. And they were prepared in case uh, Judaizers, uh, you know, um, religious leaders of the Jews would confront them and say, well, yeah, but this, that, and the other, and then they could turn around and say, yes, it does say such and such. However, this is what it's speaking of relative to the Messiah, Jesus, so on and so forth. I, um, I'm firmly convinced that I personally do not value the Bible the way that I should. And I know you're thinking, what? No, not you. You're the pastor. The reason I say that is because I was not raised in a culture that emphasized the Bible the way the Bible was emphasized to Jews who weren't even born again. It was not, I mean, one thing I can say about, um, at least when I was being raised, the Southern Baptist churches placed a lot of emphasis on the Bible, far more than what my experience was in um, a Pentecostal denomination. Uh, you know, unless you're raised in that, you don't understand how that the Bible was emphasized. Uh, we would have Bible drills. 
We had to have the books of the Bible memorized. We needed to know the, um, like a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. I mean, these were things that, that we were taught that we were supposed to have memorized. And even at that, it fell short to the way that the Jewish people were taught as they were growing up. So this is so very critical. And what I see, not just in me, but in the body of Christ today, that there is far too little emphasis on the Word of God. Uh, what's interesting is that there's a lot of um, a strong, strong emphasis on praise and worship in many churches. And that's a good thing. However, it seems as though it's come at the expense of the Word. Um, the Word of God has greater inner transforming power than praise and worship. Now you may think, well, you're diminishing praise and worship, but I'm not. I'm, what I'm saying, and I, you're going to know, you're going to understand this even more by the time we're finished here tonight. Uh, why don't you open up to Hebrews chapter four? We're going to look at a few passages of Scripture. Then I have some things to share with you that, well, anyway, I'll let you know what I'm going to share with you when I begin sharing it. Praise God. Hebrews chapter four. Now, before we get into this. What I want to do is, uh, or I'm going to do, is emphasize or try to emphasize how that what we read in the Bible about the Bible is far more um, important and critical than maybe what we've realized in the past. What I mean is, when God says something in His Word about His Word, it isn't just some kind of a poetic something. There is a message in this. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, I'm not going to break all this down, but there's a message here. And what God is saying is, the Word of God, once it is in you, begins a work. It begins doing something. He says, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And uh, the image of this is of a skilled surgeon operating and removing things that shouldn't be there. Even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is so important. Too many times we as Christians are soul-governed as opposed to spirit-governed. The spirit he's talking about here is your born-again spirit. And there are too many times in our lives where what, what we do, the decisions we make, are based upon what makes sense to our soul, not to our spirit. But he says right here that his word has the ability to divide between soul and spirit. Then he also says, um, you know, joints and marrow is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, if we had the time tonight, or if this is what God had said to do, to break all of this down, you'd see it even more clearly. But if you just think from the position of God is telling us what his word will do if we let it in. 
Now, it's not going to do any of this unless you let it in. If it doesn't have access to soul and spirit, it can't divide asunder. So it has to gain entrance on the inside. Now, look over in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Verse 8. Now I'm going to read this relative to how it would apply to us today. The principle is still the same as what it was in the Old Testament. But this book of my word shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then... Thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. Now, once again, we read this, and it's like, yeah, man, that's really cool. But notice what he says. The book of my word, my word shall not depart out of thy mouth. Now, what did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Therefore, if the word is not in you, it cannot come out of you. That's pretty obvious. And he says, meditate therein day and night. It's supposed to be on your mind. It's supposed to be in there. Meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. How many of you have ever been to a doctor and the doctor taps your knee and your knee, you know, your leg kicks out? You know, reflex action. This is what he's describing here. He's saying that because of the word being so richly and deeply in you, there will be a reflex action in any given situation that lines up with what God has said in his word. Now, as I'm saying this, you sit there and you're out there, you're listening to this, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, I see that, I understand it. But what I'm saying has got to break through to us in, uh, to the point to where we realize there will be no knee-jerk reaction, no reflex action on my part if the word is not in me. Do you understand that? Okay, a lot of Christians complain, I just can't seem to live the way that God wants me to. Now, what does he say right here? Get, get my word in you so that you can observe to do all that is written therein, and then the result will be you're going to have the blessings that my word promises. That's what it says right there. Now, granted, I know I paraphrased, but this is what God is saying about his word. Now, look over in Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, look all the way toward the end to verse, not the end, but uh, to verse 130, 130. It says, the entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. The entrance of his words giveth light and giveth understanding to the simple. Think of it like this. Here's somebody who says, well, I just don't understand all these things uh, that you teach. I mean, we actually had somebody in the church one time. They left. They said, I don't understand anything that he says. Now, I find that very hard to believe because I understand what I say. <laughs> it's not complicated. Nevertheless, the entrance of God's words give light and give understanding 
to the person who doesn't have understanding. So what he's saying is, the more you get the word in you, the more you're going to understand the word. This is, I don't know how many times we've emphasized this here as far as you get into the word, you, you put it in, you put it in, you put it in you, and it starts to make sense. Especially if you start adding, you know, praying the Spirit. But he says, the entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. Right now, no insult intended, but we should all assume that we are simple. We do not have the understanding that we should have. You say, well, now, I, I went to seminary. Well, praise God. But do you realize the Apostle Paul, um, you know, he did, well, he went to Jewish school. But his seminary was what? Time spent with the Lord in the Word. And all he had was the Old Testament. And yet, because he had that Old Testament in him and he knew it, when he got born again, then he was able to understand the Old Testament relative to kingdom living as a Christian. And he taught from that. He taught, he, he explained this to people. The more, here, now, there's not one of us in this room right now that has the word in us anywhere near what Peter had in him. Or what Matthew had in him, or James, or John, or pick your favorite New Testament person. We don't have it in us like that. Partly, it is the fault of those who have taught us in church. Partly, it is the fault of our parents who did not train us up in the way we should go so that we would continue along those lines. And then partly, it's our fault. Because when we read passages like this, we ought to think, oh, yeah, I guess maybe I should get in the Word. It ought to be, you know, a given thing. But now look over in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And take a look here. And just begin in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed. That phrase, be not conformed, it really could have been in, in, um, interpreted as do not remain conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove, know, comprehend, understand what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. How many Christians have ever said, and I know we probably all said this ourselves, I just don't know what God's will is for me. I just don't know. All right, what does it say here? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See that? And he says, if you do this, if you experience this transformation, then you will prove, you will know what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Over the years, I've heard people talk about well, if you, if you know the good, that, that's all right. But you need to progress beyond the good and, and get to the acceptable. And then if you get beyond the acceptable, you've got to know what the perfect is. You know, you just graduate. I understand what they're saying. Technically, that's not what this is saying. He's talking about that you may prove, comprehend, understand, know without a shadow of a doubt, what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. One thing. Not different levels. One thing. The good, acceptable, perfect will of God. For you. For you. But you have to be transformed by the renewing 
of your mind. That word mind is talking about your thinking, your thought process, not the renewing of your spirit. Your spirit's born again. It's the renewing of your mind. Okay, now this might sound a little blasphemous. Being born again is not enough. Being born again is the start. The transformation, the change is in the mind. Because your spirit has been renewed. You now have the mind of Christ, but... Just because you're born again and have the mind of Christ does not mean that your day-to-day way of comprehending things has been impacted beyond what you were before you were born again. This is why we need the Word. Now, what I'm going to do is read to you uh, portions of three different articles that talk specifically about the Word. And, And actually, they're talking specifically about the King James. Now, I know a lot of people want to fuss and argue about, the, you know, well, I believe this version's the better, and I believe that version's the better. Don't bring that argument to me, all right? I, I mean, I just, I will not get into an argument with you. You know, I've said this before, in all my studies and all my research, the King James is absolutely the best English translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. And even then, well, sometimes... You, you know, they put words in italics in there to try to help you out, nevertheless. Now, I'm going to read these things to you. And I am hoping that this helps you understand even more why we need to get the word in us. Me, you, why? This is a part of the outpouring. This is a part of revival. This is a part of us being ready for the fruit of revival to be harvested and to come in here. Now, this first, um, and again, these are just portions of these articles. Um, We just don't have time to get into the entire article, so I only copied and pasted uh, portions of it. But this first one came from Baylor University, and it was published in the summer of 2011. Now, what's significant about the year 2011? It was the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible being released, because it was first released in 1611. So uh, let me, I'll just read this to you. In 1607, a settlement was already developing in Virginia. Four years later, the King James Version of the Bible was released to the world. Now, I, I, don't, I never thought of it like that before. But when the settlers first came here, they didn't have the King James Bible. And it wasn't until 1611 that it was released. One of the things that happened in 1611 when the King James Bible was released to the public, um, what's a good way to put this? Okay, in, in today's terms, it was a bestseller. Well, the Bible still is a bestseller, literally, still a bestseller in the world. Um, but it's, it was like a firestorm that hit the body of Christ, well, and even scholars, because now everybody had the Bible. Every, well, they had access to it like never before. Well, From the time of its release, it made an impact on the world like no other printed work. Even its bitterest detractors concede the 1611 Bible is a literary masterpiece of the first order. Even thinkers not sympathetic to the Bible's message still praise its language. Famous skeptic H.L. Mencken found in the King James, quote, a mine of lordly and incomparable poetry at once the most stirring and the most touching ever heard of. Another remarkable testimony to the influence of the King James Version came from Richard Dawkins, 
an atheist and declared mortal enemy of the Bible who normally has nothing good to say about any aspect of religion. But concerning the King James, he asks, How on earth can anyone who cares about language be so ignorant and insensitive as to not appreciate the magnificent tones of the King James Version? That's from an atheist. That's from an atheist. And yet he's saying the King James Version is above anything else. If an atheist can say that, good glory. That means the atheist recognizes that the King James is of greater value than any other version. Think about that one. The quirks of the King James translators became a basic part of our everyday speech and thought. And I had not considered that before. But literally what happened after they translated the King James Bible, it, it impacted the way English-speaking people communicated from that point on. It had an, an immediate impact on the way people spoke. Now, people were already speaking English. I get that. But the manner in which the King James was written had an impact on the way people spoke. Now, I'm, this next um, portion of an article, I'm going to read it. It was uh, written by a man named Charles Aby, or A.B., something like that. Uh, he was a uh, like a professor at a Christian university, but he was also something of an historian. And he wrote, In early American church schools, private schools, and public schools, the Bible was used as a textbook as well as a devotional guide. Now think about that. In every school available, the Bible was used as a textbook. Whether it was a church school, public school, private school, the Bible was the standard. And he continues, The Bible was a powerful force in education in the 17th and 18th centuries. That would be the 1600s and the 1700s. Opening exercises began with the Lord's Prayer, Bible readings, and roll call. The King James Version of the Bible was brought to America by Puritans, Presbyterians, and others. Every family tried to have one, and they valued schooling because they needed it to read their Bibles. And this next part is really interesting. So the colonists became more literate than the Europeans. Now think about that. What that means is there was such a great emphasis on the Bible here in the United States. Well, at that time it wasn't the United States, the colonies. That the average colonist was more literate than the average European because of the Bible. He continues, The Bible itself was learned, no, the Bible itself was used for learning to read and for reading in the schools. The alphabet was learned by the use of Bible names. A is for Adam, B is for Boaz, C is for Caleb, and so on. This is how the kids were taught, straight from the Bible. Now you got this goofy, you know, see Billy run, run Billy run, see spot, do nasty things, you know, run spot run. Bible passages were selected to be read based on level of vocabulary. Bible stories and principles were taught. Bible history was learned by selecting historical passages for reading. And Bible principles were emphasized by memorizing the Ten Commandments. 
Attitudes toward God and the Bible were instilled in part by reading the Bible, both devotionally and to study English. Passages from Psalms, Proverbs, and the Sermon on the Mount, as well as parts of the Pentateuch, Job, and the Prophets were read to teach biblical morality. Every family tried to own a Bible. Liberals who decry the inclusion of Bible texts and references to God in school books today as indoctrination at the same time applaud modern elementary books with stories designed to teach gay morality and tolerance of all except Christian lifestyles. Puritans, Baptists, Presbyterians, and Quakers in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century America had no such qualms about, quote, indoctrination. They had God and the Bible in their textbooks and used the Bible itself in their schoolrooms for devotional reading and for learning English as well as religion and morality. This is one of the reasons why the... um, The educational level in the early years of this country was way beyond anything we have today. Have you ever read some of the writings of what they call um, our founding fathers and others from the early years of this country? I mean, they're writing. You read this and you think, my goodness, these guys were so smart. Well, yeah, one of the reasons they were so smart was because the Bible had been drilled into them from birth. And it impacted the way that they thought and analyzed life. And so therefore, when they would write things, their writing was filled. It was at an educational level that far exceeds anything that goes on in our country today, including like Harvard University. It's way beyond that. Well, now listen to this. This is an article by uh, Susan Davis, and it came out just last year. Uh, And there was so much to this one. But it's titled, How Does Reading the Bible Affect Your Brain? Dr. Michael Ferguson performed a clinical trial where the researchers scanned and studied the brains of religious individuals while they were involved with prayer and reading scripture. In this study, it was found that there were three regions of the brain that were most active during these times. Areas such as the frontal attention lobe, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the nucleus accumbens all experience significant increases of activity and responsiveness during such activities. It was found that high amounts of dopamine were released through the body while reading the Bible. When dopamine is released, you are likely to be more focused, motivated, and happy. Reading the Bible can affect neural pathways in the brain. These pathways are in charge of cognitive thinking and behavior. As you read, dopamine releases and affects the thoughts you have while reading the Bible. These factors contribute to changing your ideals and key beliefs. Reading the Bible can do a lot more than just affect the brain, though. Once certain parts of the brain are activated... Emotional responses begin to show not only inward, but outward in the form of behavioral changes as well. Let me just throw this out. You got a kid that's acting up? Stick the Bible in the kid's face. Pay him or her to read if necessary. But get him in the Word. Why? I just read why. 
It impacts the very behavior of the child. Now think about this. How is it that all of a sudden we have children that need to be in all these drugs just so they can control themselves? It wasn't like that when I was growing up. I mean, yeah, you had kids that acted up. I was one of them on occasion. But it wasn't like it is today. Why is that? Well, back when I was growing up, we did read the Bible in school. At least to the first, second, third grade. That We did this. It had an impact on society. Well, nowadays, here's what's really sad. Too many Christian parents, parents say, I just don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. I'm reading to you clinical research. You don't have to believe me. I'm reading to you clinical research that proves what the Bible does to the human brain when it's being read. Now to continue. As stated, reading the Bible affects neural pathways within your brain. One of these neural pathways in particular is called the mesolimbic dopaminergic system, yeah, or MLDA. This system is also known as the brain reward pathway, and the activation of this pathway comes with many benefits. Functional theories have credited the MLDA with enforcing goal-oriented behaviors. In other words, if you read the Bible, it helps you to get your act together. It helps us to uh, not only set goals before it, godly goals before us, but also it helps us to stay focused on those goals to accomplish what God wants us to do. And it all goes back to reading the Bible. Just reading. Even if you can't pronounce half the words, you do your best. Um, To continue, when this system is activated by reading the Bible, it can have multiple effects on the way you behave in your day-to-day life. For one, reading the Bible can encourage and inspire behaviors such as praying. Now, these are clinical studies proving that if you read the Bible, it can actually motivate you to pray. Well, that makes sense to me considering what God says in his word about prayer. This is due to the fact that when when the mesolimbic dopaminergic system begins working, it causes our brains and bodies to experience a strong emotional response, which in turn will affect our behavior. The more positive emotions you feel while reading the Bible, the stronger the effects are that occur within your brain. Reading the Bible can heighten brain connectivity. When you read, you are using several brain functions at a time, including visual, auditory, comprehension, and more. Multiple parts of your brain are used to decode the words on the page and pairing those functions with the other parts of your brain that are releasing chemicals like dopamine. It's also proven that you can improve your concentration if you dedicate just as little as 30 minutes a day to reading your Bible. It has to be the Bible. To get all these results, you know, it can't be Reader's Digest. It's got to be the Bible. And it goes back to the King James. If you already struggle with concentration, this is a great practice tool for you. Setting aside a time of day for yourself to read the Bible is great for creating healthy patterns. Your brain is responsible for noticing patterns and helping you create structure. Not only will these patterns enable you to set time aside to read your Bible, but this time will also help with your concentration. Everything I've just been reading to you 
comes from studies. I don't know what else to say to me or to you or to anybody else about just reading the Bible. Um, in numerous studies, I've shared this before, in numerous studies, science has proven that the more complex the reading material is, the more it forces the brain to develop connective paths leading to greater cognitive and analytical thought processes, along with a marked increase in the ability to learn and retain information. Now, if let's, let's think of it like this. If we have been raised in a home where our parents did to us what we've just heard, how would we be different today? Remember what I was just sharing with you about what reading the Bible does to the brain? What's not in that article is, this is what Bible reading does to the brain of a Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if you could get people who are lost just to spend 30 minutes a day reading the Bible, you think it might be easier to lead them to accept Jesus as Savior? Absolutely. Because the power of the Word of God entering into them, it begins impacting their thought process. You don't have to be born again for your thought process to be impacted this way. But as Christians, how much more so? Um, think again to Psalm 119, verse 30, 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. What I've just been reading you, to you here, it is confirming what Psalm 119, 130 says. God said it centuries ago. And now science is proving, yeah, <laughs> it giveth understanding unto the simple. It changes the way that you live it. Yeah, but Brother Martin, you don't understand. When I read the Bible, I just don't, I just, I mean, so much of this stuff, I just don't get it. That's the point. The entrance of God's words gives light and it gives understanding. You, like, like this article said, give 30 minutes a day. But I don't under, give 30 minutes. Yeah, but I don't. No, stop with the I don't. See, not only does the Bible tell you what it will do. But I've just read to you clinical studies that secular science has produced. Now, I don't know what else, how else, what do we do? How do we argue with this? And in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Everything I've read to you tonight, the, the stuff from all the studies, it confirms what Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says. You know, 2,000 years ago, God gave this wisdom, and we just thought it was, you know, poetic prettiness. And God is saying, nah, what I'm telling you is, you will change your mind if you will do this. Well, I just don't believe everything the Bible says. Keep reading. Well, I just don't understand. Keep reading. Well, I just don't think that's going to happen for me. Really. That's just an excuse. You're just trying to get out of doing this. God says it works. Science says it works. And you say it doesn't? Okay, where's your proof? <laughs> God can't lie. And here's what the Word will do for us. Now what this means is, you know, 
Prayer, fasting, worship, and the Word. If we do this, if we get into it, if we read, just, okay, 30 minutes a day. You say, well, I can't give 30 minutes a day. Can you give 10 minutes in the morning and pray softly in tongues while you read? Can you give 10 minutes at lunch and then 10 minutes at night? That's not a whole lot. That adds up to 30 minutes a day. Obviously, (coughs) reading 30 minutes at one time is the best thing. What if you did more than 30 minutes? The point I'm making is this. The Word of God is alive. Do you understand this? I don't. But I believe it. You say, what do you mean? I don't understand how this is alive. I mean, it just lays there. It's not doing anything. That's because it's spiritual life, not natural life. God, in a way I don't understand... He gave this word, but then it's like he laid his hands on it and released his life into these words. Every single word. Including the names that we can't pronounce. All of it that's in here. It's life. And so therefore, we're introducing that life into us. But we have to do it. And so what happens is, then for us... In these services, when the Bible is being read, the word is being sown. And those of you who are going to be reading tonight, why don't you come on up and uh, just go ahead and sit over here on this pew. And tonight we're going to be reading from uh, Philippians and then also over in Psalms. Now... I would encourage you, you know, get your Bible, follow along. And maybe, just maybe, you understand tonight why I place such an emphasis, or maybe you understand even better after tonight, why I place such an emphasis on the King James Version. And I'm not just the only one who's saying this. I'm sharing with you the fact that the King James Version impacted the very foundation of our country and led to its development. And the people in those days rejected any other form of a religion that did not line up with the King James. Did you know, in the early years of this country, Catholics were not allowed to establish a church? Catholicism was considered a cult. And there were in some sectors, now I'd have to go back and read more on this, where they would have um, executed a Catholic. Because, well, the Catholics teach about, you know, praying to saints. The Bible doesn't, but Catholics do. The Catholics talk about Mary. Um, She stayed a virgin her whole life. That's not what the Bible says, but that's what the Catholics teach. The people, uh, the Catholics teach you that Mary, totally sinless, her whole life. That's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what the Catholics teach. And those are just a few examples of why, in the early years of this country, Catholicism was not permitted. In fact, as um, going all the way back, uh, well, as recently as uh, 1960, there were a lot of people who did not think John F. Kennedy would be elected president 
because he was Catholic. And they'd never had, we'd never had a Catholic president before. That sentiment carried all the way up to the 1960s. Now, this isn't a Catholic bashing service. But what I'm saying is this. The standard of God's word was adhered to in the early years of this nation far more than what it is today, even in the church. So as we read the word of God, it is extremely important that we understand we're not just doing this because, well, it's the right thing to do. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. You understand what I mean by that? This is what God wants us to do. We need to get the word in us. What I'm hoping is that these services where we have the reading, that it becomes motivational to us to want to do more reading on our own time. Now, I'm going to begin this tonight. I'll be reading um, here in Philippians, beginning in chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ." being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice." For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. For I am in a strait between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. 
Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. If there therefore be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit of, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being from being in the form of God, through though it not be robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeliness of men. And being found in fashion as man, be humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven, and things of earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you to be to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless, blameless and harmless, the Son of God without rebuke, in the midst of of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offend, offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man, no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Christ, Jesus Christ, but ye know the proof of him that as a son with the father he hath served with me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Ephroditus, my brother and compa companion in the labor, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and ye that ministered to my wants for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye heard that he had been sick for indeed he had he was sick nigh unto death but god had mercy on him and not on him only but on on me also 
lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I send him therefore carefully that ye may that ye see him again. Ye may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Rejoice him, receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold in such in reputation, because for the work of the Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding the, his life to supply your lack of service toward me. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ." And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything be ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech you, Odias, and beseech Syntyk, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus.
Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding ye have well done, and ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly that they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me, lest ye tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let them tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in mine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies and wake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people, judge me. O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. But establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saith the upright in heart. God judgeth in righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. 
Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit, and digged it, and is fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 8 Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest steal the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visiteth him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I will praise thee, O Lord. With my whole heart, I will show forth all thy mar- marvelous works. I will be glad and, and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou most high. When my enemies are turned back, they shall fall and perish at thy presence. Thou that hast maintained my right and my cause, thou settest in the throne judging right. Thou hast rebuked the heathen and hast destroyed the wicked. Thou hast put out thy name and forever and ever. O thou enemy, destructions come to a perpetual end, and thou hast destroyed cities. Their memorial is perished with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. And they that they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. For thou, for thou, Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Sing praises to the Lord with dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the peoples his doings. When he maketh inquisition for blood, he remembereth them, for he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that lifteth up me, thou that lifteth me up from the gates of death that I may show forth all thy praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will, rejoice in, I will rejoice in thy salvation. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made, and the net which they hid in their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executed the wicked. And ensnared in the work of, of his own hands, Hagion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the heathen be judged in thy sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride doth persecute the poor. Let them be taken in the devices that they have imagined. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth 
the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. The wicked, though the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. His ways are always grievous. Thy judgments are far above, out of his sight. As for all the, his enemies, he putteth at them. He hath said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and fraud, and under his tongue, tongue is mischief and vanity. He sitteth in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places doth he murder the innocent. His eyes are privily set against the poor. He lieth in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lieth in wait to catch the poor. He doth catch the poor when he draweth him into his net. He croucheth and humbleth himself that the poor may fall by his strong ones. He hath said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thine hand, forget not the humble. Wherefore doth the wicked contemn God? He has said in his heart, Thou wilt not require it. Thou hast seen it, for thou beholdest mischief and spite, to requite it with thy hand. The poor committeth himself unto thee. Thou art the helper of the fatherless. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear, to judge the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may no more oppress. Praise God. <laughs> Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You know, for all of you that have read and uh, last week and, and tonight, uh, really you should be rejoicing that we are not reading from the book of Genesis, where, where it talks about, and so-and-so begat, and all those names that nobody can pronounce. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, in the future... If uh, you know, if I contact you and ask you if you would like to read, uh, please don't feel pressure. If you don't want to, that's all right. It, it's perfectly all right. Uh, but this is a good thing, guys. It's a really good thing. And I can't speak for any of you, but I feel something when the word is being read like that. It just it feels so good. So thank you all, and I mean that sincerely. I know that. Uh, for many people who normally don't speak in front of folks, you know, um, you get up here to read like that, might get a little nervous and so on. But, you know, as time goes on and we do this more and more, you'll become more comfortable with it. And glory to God, man, that's what this is all about. How Can you, can you imagine the fruit of revival, people coming in here, and they're seeing everybody involved in reading the Word of God to the congregation. That will speak volumes. Praise the Lord.